There's no doubt that our society is uh, concerned and desperate for individuality. There is a part of our society that uh, thrives on anything but being individual. We all try very hard to look like everybody else, and uh, we are a living testimony to that this morning. We generally don't have a ton of variety in the room, and if you want to supply that or if you think you are supplying that, then you can let me know later. But we generally do want something about us to stand out from the crowd, and our society encourages that. One of the most um, immediate or near senses of this that I've come in contact with is in the motorcycle world. And if you didn't know, um, I, I ride a motorcycle, and I know this is going to cause some questionable issues in my life and potential church discipline. Um, Bob Wolford yesterday asked me if my parents were actually at our home when I was at the office, and I said, yeah, they're over there. And he said I was going to swing by and talk to him about the motorcycle and uh, see if my dad could have some sway in this issue. But I have a motorcycle, and as I have re-entered the motorcycle world, there is nothing more important to a motorcyclist than individuality. They want to stand out as special in some way from the rest of the ho-hum motorcyclists today. And if you've been out in these last couple days, there are more motorcycles out in these last three days than any time so far this year. We've hit the warm weather, and they're out there, and I'm noticing more and more, and I am aware internally of the desire to be special with my motorcycle. What can I do? What parts can I cut off? What can I weld? What can I do to make this as much like what we see on TV as possible? Can I have a West Coast chopper? That's the question. I love the reality of the individualist, the artistic creativity, the desire to set ourselves apart from the norm in whatever our particular hobby is. You see this in athletics. You see this in fashion. You see this in every component of your life. People who are desperate and are dedicated to standing out from the usual. The question this morning, and really as we conclude chapter 5, this won't catch you by surprise, but the question for us this morning is, what makes us stand out from the culture around us? What separates us, not as individuals, but as a group of individuals, as God's people, what divides us apart from the remainder of our culture? Is there anything that those who know you would say sets you apart? What makes you different? What is it that is unique about you? And in particular, when we come to these references in Matthew chapter 5, what is it that makes you unique from your culture from the inside out? What quality is there that would distinguish you amongst your family, your friends, your co-workers, any and all who are in no relationship with Jesus Christ? As we've worked through this, this section, these verses from verse 21 really all the way through verse 48, and as we've dealt with this demand for the kingdom citizens in Matthew chapter 5, this question has come up over and over and over again, whether we have understood or seen it or not. What sets us apart? Well, clearly, when we come to Matthew chapter 5, our heart transformation sets us apart internally from everybody else around us. But your heart transformation that happened at the point of your conversion, your justification, your salvation, that heart transformation is also to be seen in the external activities, attitudes, and actions of your life. And so whether we're in the Beatitudes and seeing the nature and character of the new heart, the new man that has been created, 2 Corinthians 5.17, or whether we're in verses 11 and 12, and we're seeing the result of our changed hearts in response from the culture around us, in their persecution, in their anger and hatred for what we are internally, and what that causes us to be externally. Whether we're examining in verses 13 through 16, our effect on the world, all of this is asking us the question, what is it that sets apart the kingdom citizen from the rest of his culture, or even... We could say in our church today and in the broader scheme of the American evangelical landscape, what sets us apart from all those people who profess the name Christian? What is the exclusive possession 
of those who have been saved by God, those who have been transformed. Well, we find in verse 21 all the way through verse 47 or 48, depending on how we divide this up, we find a number of key demands for the kingdom citizen that can only be accomplished, right? That can only be accomplished by the heart that's exposed in verses 3 through 10. And we see repeatedly that the internal quality of the kingdom citizen will set them apart from their culture because the internal quality will drive an external lifestyle. And that lifestyle is counter-culture. It is counter-intuitive. It sets us apart. It distinguishes us from all the rest of the world around us. And it is just as distinguishing today as it was when Christ first taught this message on the side of a hill on a plateau in the land of Israel. As we ask that question, we come to the final of these six antithetical statements. You have heard it said, but I say to you, and Christ is exposing his authority as he reveals to us in 17 to 20. He is the fulfillment of the law, and now he speaks to us as king and fulfillment to outline for us what he demands of those who are his. Just by way of review, if you've forgotten, we started with the heart of the murderer, which is anger. So much greater is the demand of Christ than that of the cultural religious standard of the day, which said you should not murder, which was true, and murderers will be punished. Christ says not only will murderers be punished, but all who possess the heart of a murderer will be punished, which is anger. Then we saw the heart of adultery as exposed in the life, which is lust. And followed up that discussion of lust with divorce, which is adultery in a specific setting. And God's high view for marriage in the kingdom. We exposed and looked at in verses 33 through 37, God's kingdom demand for truth in his people. What a, what a convicting element for us. Inescapable realities of our lives. Anger, lust truth-bearing, our yes being yes and our no being no. And then we wrapped up these last two weeks dealing with verses 38 through 42 and looking at our response, the kingdom love response that sets aside retaliation and instead not only refuses to retaliate and to produce revenge, but grants kindness, which grants love and compassion even to those who are attempting to harm us or to do us evil. This morning we're going to look at this final one, this sixth antithetical statement, this sixth demand of the kingdom as Jesus presents a broad overview of what it is to be a part of his reign, to be under him, to claim him as the one we follow. And this will only heighten our awareness of how different we are to be as God's people. The, the difficulty for us is finding in verse 11 and 12 that God's people will be reviled and persecuted and will be slandered on account of Christ. Our difficulty is with Paul promising young Timothy that everyone who desires to live godly will be persecuted. We have a hard time with that, predominantly not because we live in a society that provides for us religious freedom. We struggle with that being a reality because we have not grasped, nor have we lived out, the demand for kingdom living, which is a distinction that will set you against your culture. It's inevitable. It's not something that we have to produce. It is the very nature of our transformed hearts being exposed through the life that we live and the decisions that we make. And this final portion in verses 43 to 47, will wrap up these teachings and will lay upon us again the heavy burden, the burden that demands of us a standard of righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And I trust that we'll find our hope once again in Christ. Last week when we were speaking about retaliation, I was talking with one of you after the service, and we talked about that passage being a claustrophobic passage. It just makes us want to get out. We want it to end. And there's nowhere to go. 
And somebody came and said, the only place when you get to the claustrophobic passage to go is to your knees. And that's exactly right. When Scripture puts the, the, the screws in tight on us and it clamps down on our lives and exposes our sinful hearts, the only response to the demands of the kingdom citizen is to fall before the king who has provided for you to be a part of his kingdom. Let's read these verses together as we study them and then we'll unpack them and just look briefly at the truths that are found here in verse 43 down through verse 48. Let's read them together. Verse 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, But I say to you, and here are the words of Jesus, the king, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles or the pagans do the same? You therefore, here's the conclusion to this whole chapter, you therefore must be perfect. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now this morning we've divided up each one of these six into the same headings. And we're going to use those headings again and we're going to add one so that we can study verse 48 briefly at the end. We have the religious norm of the society. We have the religious norm. Then we have the kingdom demand. And then we're going to conclude today with the kingdom conclusion to this entire portion of the Sermon on the Mount. The religious norm is always found in the first verse of the section. And the kingdom demand is always found in the second verse of the section. And they're set apart with key phrases at the beginning. The religious norm is, you've heard it was said, This is what's popular. This is what you know to be true from those who teach you. The kingdom demand is always outlined with the definitive, but I, and if we could bold and capital I, it would do justice to the Greek language. Jesus says, but I myself am telling you. Authoritatively, I'm setting myself up as the king, and now I tell you, and he outlines for us the demand for our lives. And so we're going to do that again today. Exact same process of studying this paragraph as we have in the weeks past. So let's look first at verse 43 and examine the religious norm that we find there. What was it that was common lingo? What was the axiom of their day? Well, we find it in verse 43, and it's kind of striking to us because this is a little bit outside of our culture. We wouldn't naturally understand this. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The religious system under the leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had so uh, pervaded upon the people of Israel that their teaching had so influenced them that they were even at this point completely outside of what we find in our Old Testament. You'll remember that in each of these religious norms there is a component at least, if not the whole, of the original thought found in the Old Testament. And then there is a distortion that flows from it. Here in this section, in this final antithetical statement, we find the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious system completely outside of the bounds of the Old Testament law. What was it they were used to saying to each other? Hey, you love your neighbor and you can hate your enemy. And they lived by that principle. That was a clear distortion of what we find in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which called upon them, to to love their neighbor, to sacrifice for their neighbor, to have compassion upon their neighbor. Verses 33 and 34 even talk about compassion on the one who is dwelling in the land who wasn't by birth a part of the nation. So there was clear Old Testament proof that they were to be loving people. Here's what they had done in distortion the religious system had distorted this particular Old Testament teaching by adding to it this final component, and hate your enemy. And you say, how did they deduce that God would allow, without guilt, for someone to hate someone else? I'll tell you, they had so narrowed the application 
of the word neighbor, that they had given themselves an open door for hating their enemies. Well, I don't don't understand. Within the nation of Israel, the neighbor was considered to be a national Jew in good standing within the Jewish cultural system. And because the Old Testament clearly spoke of loving your neighbor as in the context of a theocracy, that is, the nation of Israel under the king, God himself, they were articulating this to the people as being such a specific and narrow application that it left the door open for hatred as a counter-response to those that were not your brothers or your neighbors. We see this prevalent throughout the New Testament. In fact, this is the very, the very issue that Jesus addresses in Luke chapter 10. And if you turn over to Luke chapter 10, we'll see him dealing with this very same problem. And he uses a parable that you know very well to answer this problem. Luke chapter 10. And we'll read in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, this is obviously speaking to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself because of his sinful shortcoming in relation to the perfect standard of the law, desiring to justify himself, the lawyer says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's exposing us to this problem in their culture. Who's my neighbor? Define it for me. And Jesus replied with this parable beginning in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out the two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan has fallen on hard times because it has become a flannel graph story in most of our minds. We know this. We have these little flannel graph creatures of this guy laying in the bushes, and then here comes the priest, and here comes the Levite, and then here comes the Samaritan, and and we lose the picture of what Jesus is pointing out. The question that he asks is, who was a neighbor to the man beaten and robbed, who was assumed to be a Jew? And the answer is completely off the wall for the people listening, because the answer is a Samaritan, not their priest and not their Levite. He's a temple worker. Jesus was outlining that even outside of the nation of Israel, those who would show compassion indiscriminately, those who would show compassion unconditionally, would be marked as those living out the Old Testament law of loving your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor is indiscriminate. It includes everyone. And yet we find in Matthew chapter 5 that the axiom of their day was love your neighbor And hate your enemy. So they narrowed, in their distortion, they narrowed the understanding of neighbor so that it gave them the opportunity to despise those who were outside of their circle. Now, we we can understand this, okay? We, We don't get this from a cultural standpoint of your religion has not taught you to hate certain people. I trust. No matter what your background, if you've been raised in this Western society, generally you have not been taught verbally that it is okay to hate certain people, and yet we totally get this idea. We totally understand this concept. Those who are on the inside, I love them, I care for them, and I'll do whatever I can to help them. Those who are on the outside, I really have no responsibility to, and I'm even allowed to despise them and to treat them with hatred if I so choose. 
And the inside and the outside can be defined in a number of different ways in our lives. It can be in a work group. It could be in our family groups. It could be within your schools. It could be within whatever realm of life you want to bring it to. We understand what it is to discriminate and to produce hatred towards one group while showing affection and love to another. And so keep in mind, as we look at this religious norm and as this truth sets in in all of its wickedness, the question that started our study this morning. What is it that sets us apart from the culture around us? What is it that sets apart the kingdom citizen? Well, here is one reality. Here is one action and one attitude that will set apart the believer from the unbeliever. The religious norm was that neighbors were to be loved and enemies could be hated. And now we find the kingdom demand in verse 44. We turn that corner with the strong, contrastive word, but Jesus says in total contrast, polar opposite to what we just read in verse 43, now I say to you, I declare as king to my kingdom citizens, love your enemies. That is the kingdom demand. Love your neighbor is still firmly intact, but the part that was desperately wrong was this idea that hatred towards an enemy was a viable and allowable attitude, which could produce viable and allowable actions. And Jesus says the kingdom citizen is going to be marked. They're going to be distinguished by an unconditional an indiscriminate love. They're going to love both their neighbors, that is those who are within their sphere of affection, and they're going to love those who are not their neighbors, who are their enemies, who are outside of the sphere of their affection. They're going to love supernaturally. Jesus goes on in verse 44 to give us a little bit of a window into what that love will look like. One of the key components that we find in the second half of verse 44 is not only will they love, but furthering the idea they will pray specifically for those who persecute them, drawing us back to verses 11 and 12, that the kingdom citizen will be hated and they will be persecuted and their response will not be the norm of their religious system Their response will not be the norm of the culture in which they live. They will love their enemy, and they will pour out their heart before God for those who are persecuting them. This is way outside of our natural capability. Exposes to us again how desperately we need God's grace to accomplish this demand of our lives. Now, before we go any further, I need to make a technical note. This shouldn't take long. We don't have a lot of time to pour into this. But in verse 44, some of you probably have a translation that has a lot more words. Maybe double the amount of words in verse 44. The ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, the main translations that we would utilize here and that many of you have, all have this abbreviated form of verse 44. Now, why is it that some would have a longer verse and others would have a shorter verse, does this completely wash away our confidence in God's preservation of his word? No. The answer is no. And let me, let me ask this question. Why is it that this content is missing from the ESV? Why is it that our Bible, as we hold in our lap, does not have this? And there are several reasons. And if you're interested, you can take a note of these reasons. Here are the reasons why those who translated the New Testament into the English Standard Version chose to go with the abbreviated reading of this verse. Number one, the earliest manuscripts that have been found of the New Testament copies exclude the extra words that you find in the King James or the New King James Version of verse 44. Let me say that to you again. There are different There are different ages to manuscripts, and those are copies that we utilize to translate the Bible. There are copies that are much older than other copies. The oldest copies that have been found to date do not have the extended version of this verse. It is the newer ones 
that have this extension. Therefore, one of the reasons that they've chosen the shorter is because the oldest manuscripts, which go closest to the original autographs, that is the original documents of Scripture, those oldest manuscripts do not include the addition or the fuller version of this verse. Second reason, in the newest copies, those that are most recent, where this addition is added, there is so much variation in the individual copies of which words are actually to be included that it furthers the confidence that this is actually not an original uh, version of the verse, that the original is the shortest while the longer is added sometime later. So why would that happen and how would that happen? Well, in this case, it would seem that a later scribe who was copying the book of Matthew, and it's hard for us to imagine, but he would do this by hand with a pen. He would sit with a copy of Matthew and he would copy out everything he could and he would switch pens. They took breaks. They were extremely regimented and some monk somewhere is copying the gospel account of Matthew. He comes to this portion at some point and it would be safe to assume that he has at some time in the, in the near past also copied the book of Luke. He gets to verse 44 and he starts into his copy and he does a double take and he looks back over at his copy that he's using as his source and he says, that can't be right because there's more to that verse. And what he is thinking of is Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 35. If we go over to Luke chapter 6, we're going to find, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. In verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners who love them, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners do the same. And if you lend But love your enemies, verse 35 says, and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful, for he is kind to the ungrateful, and the evil be merciful, as your Father is merciful. All of this is a synopsis of what we have just finished studying in Matthew chapter 5. Now bounce up to verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, that is those who are mine, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, and so on. So at some point later in the copying of the New Testament, when it came to verse 44, a scribe would have added what we find in Luke 6 to fill out what we find in verse 44. How then that goes forward is the next scribe would take his work and copy it and copy it and copy it, and therefore we have various renditions of verse 44. That's how that process happens. And the difficulty for us as those who study God's word, particularly in a technical aspect in the languages and in the copies, is that we do not have original documents. I don't know if you knew that or not, but there aren't original documents of the Bible. We don't have anything from Paul. We have copies of Paul's writings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God, in his miraculous preservation of his word, has used over 5,000 copies of the New Testament to give us a clear and accurate copy of God's word in our own language. But there are portions of Scripture where we'll hit these kind of bumps in the road, like verse 44 where the oldest manuscripts don't give us the additional words, where the newest manuscripts give us a myriad of options with new words, which tells us that there was not a solidified standard. And all of that leads to the New Testament translators of this copy of God's Word saying we're going to go with the shorter reading in Matthew 5 and the original longer reading in Luke chapter 6. There are so many deer in the headlight looks that it's just amazing. I think whatever benefit we were getting from verse 44 may have just gone straight over the top. If you need a buzzword, this is called textual criticism, and it's a crucial task for us since we have the scriptures preserved through human copies, not the original documents. Okay, that's important. 
and we'll deal more with this later. And if you have questions, I'd be more than willing to work with you on that. The kingdom citizen is called upon by Christ in verse 44 to love even those who are his enemies. Now, there are a couple of key things that we need to think about when we talk about verse 44, 45, and 46. And that is in this kingdom demand that is given to us, what we must understand is the love that is to be expressed. We, we are far removed from the use of this word love in our present context. This is tough for us. Because this is not a sappy, emotional, um, goodwill love. This isn't a pat on the back love. This is a compassion that turns into action for the one who is being loved. This is an active, internal, and external affection that is poured out. Some have taken this word way too far. This is the common word that you know, even if you are brand new, you may have heard this word, agape, love, which is a poor rendition of a Greek word, which is agapao, it's a verb. Many have taken that word much too far. The concept here is that this is an internal and external love to an enemy, and this is completely countercultural. This is the kingdom demand. Now, why why are we to be doing this activity? Why is it that our poor in spirit hearts, our mourning and meek hearts, why are they expressing love? Why are they desiring to give love to enemies? And we find it in verse 45. You find a little phrase that you ought to be circling and underlining in your Bible study when you come to it, so that. There's a purpose statement. So that. And he's going to tell you why. Why did Jesus just say what he said? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, here's the purpose, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is the answer to the why question. This is the answer to the purpose for this kingdom demand, and it draws us back to verse 9 of chapter 5. So if your Bible is still open in Matthew 5, Back in verse 9, we find this same concept. We studied this weeks ago, months ago now. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or sons and daughters of God. And you might remember that when we studied that section, the idea there is a very Jewish idea, that a son of something is, is, a, is a person who reflects the character of the one whom they are being attributed to. So the sons of God are those who reflect his character through peacemaking attitudes and activities. And when we come back to this standard, this demand for us in verse 44, that we love our enemies, it is for the purpose of us reflecting the character of God, being known as the sons of the God of heaven. You say, I want my life, I desire for my life to reflect God's glory. Matthew chapter 5 is giving you a number of ways for you to reflect his character, his heart, his attitude in your daily life. And we have found over and over again that we fall far short of this character of God. Now explains a little more to us about this love that God has in his character when we go on in verse 45 and he gives us an explanation of that love of the Father who is in heaven. What is he talking about? Well, in the second part of verse 45, we find this sentence, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God, in his expression of indiscriminate love, whether friend or enemy, whether neighbor or those who are outside, his expression comes in many practical aspects of what we call common grace. These are gracious parts of God's affection towards humanity as a whole that all experience, whether they are his or they are not his. And in particular, Matthew chapter 5 outlines that the sun and the rain represent two opportunities for you to reflect on God's indiscriminate compassion on creation. He allows rain to fall on the crops and the fields of those pagans who despise him who live to defame him and who rebel against him at every turn 
right next to the crops of the one who worships him and who grows in total dependence upon him and brings honor and glory to his name. When that rain is passed, he brings the sunshine that we have all enjoyed this last weekend. And your neighbors who do not know God, and Romans 3 tells us, hate God and do not seek him. They despise him. They got to enjoy the same sunshine you did. God is gracious towards his enemies. He is patient towards his enemies, whom he will ultimately destroy. This is an expression of the character that we can reflect as we love those who are against us for the cause of Christ. Now, just a common note before we, before we jump too far ahead, this cannot lead us to a universalistic approach to God. Okay? God is not indiscriminately loving to the same level to the, every person. To say that God loves the world indiscriminately is true, but he does not love the world indiscriminately and without quality. There are levels of his affection to individuals within his created universe. God loves his elect in a special way. He has a special affection, Ephesians 1 tells us, on those whom he has chosen to be conformed to the image of his Son. He has a special affection on those that he draws to himself who turn in repentance and faith and believe that Christ is their substitute. And so while God does show compassion and affection for all, he does not show compassion and affection for all without qualitative changes. No different than us. You are not called upon to love your enemy the same way that you love your child, with the same emotion, the same response, the same quickness to help and to shower with love. And yet you are called upon to love your neighbor and to love your child and to love those in your church, and to love your enemies. This is an expression of the character of God lived out in the kingdom citizen's life. So it cannot lead us to universalism, which is the idea that everybody ends up in heaven in the end because God loves everybody. Yes, God does love everybody and is gracious and merciful to everybody, and yet ultimately... That love and affection is set in a special way on those who are in his son. It is the affection that he has for his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, not only does he give us a purpose statement in verse 45, so that, but now in verses 46 and 47, he gives us logical arguments for kingdom love. He shows us, he exposes us in verses 46 and 47 to the logic of what he's saying. What a masterful teacher Jesus was. He not only called upon us and called upon his hearers to a radical lifestyle, he not only gave them the purpose for that lifestyle, but then he exemplified for them the folly of any other cheapened form of obedience. And we find that in verse 46 and 47. You find these two illustrations. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, or only your family members, or only those of your ethnic background, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles practice the same? Say, what is the point of this? Jesus' point in verse 46 and 47 through these illustrations and this logic is to outline for us that loving those who love you is just a human activity. And greeting and showing kindness to those who are your family, no matter how broad we stretch that, is only human. That's a human attitude. That's a human activity. In both illustrations, Jesus uses uh, such strong people groups to outline what he's saying. He says in verse 46, do not even the tax collectors do the same. Okay? So if you love those who love you back... You love those who reciprocate your affection. Then, wow, pat on the back, the tax collectors do that. Now let's talk about tax collectors. Just April 15th was just a little while ago, and our tax collector took whoever he is. We've named him Sam, but he is the monstrosity that is government. Okay, Sam came, and he took your money. You gave it willingly, I trust, because that was commanded of you. 
and with a cheerful heart of obedience. If you didn't, then uh, we need to talk afterward. Okay? He came, he took, and many of you did not in- enjoy your tax collector coming and uh, knocking on the door. As you put that envelope in the mail, you did not find yourself overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude that you got the opportunity to give to such a charitable organization. Okay? It just didn't happen. And yet you don't have any clue the kind of hatred that these people had for tax collectors. The Roman government was set up in dominance over the people of Israel. But it ran a farm system of tax collectors. Right? And this is the pyramid scheme of all pyramid schemes. You've got an emperor at the top of the food chain. Underneath of him, you've got people who are ruling over the income of taxes. Underneath of them, you have people who are within particular communities making sure that the community gives its taxes. And underneath of them, you have people who are actually going from door to door collecting the taxes from the people. And the tax collector that Jesus references and that you read about all the way through your New Testament gospel accounts, that tax collector was a Jewish individual who had sold out to the Roman government and was being a tool in the hand of the Roman government to oppress the people of the nation of Israel. They were hated. Not only were they hated, they so closely connected themselves to Gentiles that they were considered unclean in their culture. They were despised. They were outcast. This was public sin at the same level as harlotry. That's why you find Jesus being accused of hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors. This is public sin. And it was the most debauched form of living that these people could have imagined. The tax collectors even loved people who loved them. And one commentator said that had to be like their mother. Because nobody else did. And other tax collectors. Maybe it was their mom and then other tax collectors. But no matter who it was, tax collectors even showed affection to people who loved them back. All right? You understand how strong the logic is here? Jesus is saying, go ahead, give yourself a ribbon. Stamp it on your chest. I love people who love me back. I'm doing really well. Good. You're just right there with the tax collectors. Well done. Here's the kingdom standard. Love your enemies. Then he uses the second one. He says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So if it couldn't get any worse, he moved even outside of the lowest of the Jewish community into the Gentile world and said, Okay, you tell me. I'm trying to live this out. I'm doing this because I show greetings. I show affection. Greeting was a much bigger issue in their culture than in ours. We shake hands, and I am glad for this, by the way. We shake hands. We might pat each other on the shoulder. If it's a man hug, it better have three slaps and it's out. We don't prolong this thing. We certainly don't kiss each other, okay? Holy kiss, that's very cultural. Okay, I don't want to see that, and I don't want you doing that. We greet each other in a very cordial and very basic way. In the Jewish culture, greeting was your opportunity to show how much respect you had for the person you were greeting. And boy, you would pour it on for the one that you loved. You would hang on their neck. You would kiss them on the neck. No man should kiss another man on the neck. It should be, it should be wrong. And yet they did this. And so they're showing that their love and their affection and their compassion was poured out to their own families, to their own kinsmen, to their own people group. And boy, I love, I love like God loves because I love my family. Jesus smacks them back to reality and says that'll never do in the kingdom. That'll never be enough because even the Gentiles do that. Well done, Jewish, personal, self-righteous, religious person. You have just doomed yourself to the same curse that the Gentiles have on them, which is the judgment of God. Gentile word here, the use of Gentile, was the broader understanding that all those who were outside of the promises of Israel were pagans. So the word carries the connotation of pagans. Pagans do the same thing. Gentiles do the same thing. This is the logic that Jesus uses to drive home 
the loving of enemies as the countercultural kingdom standard. Listen to this. John Stott says, The life of the old, fallen humanity is based on rough justice, avenging injuries, and returning favors. The life of the new, redeemed humanity is based on divine love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. You are, you are inundated with the idea that if you do something for me, I'll do something for you. You are inundated with the idea that if you don't do something for me, don't expect me to do something for you. And you are really inundated with the idea that if you do something evil to me, I'm going to do something evil back. Because that's the only natural response. And that's right. That is the natural response. That's the one you were born with. That's your nature. Unless Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 10 has taken place. And your natural response has been replaced with a supernatural response. Hating your enemy is sin. Loving those who love you is natural. It's human. And loving those who hate you is supernatural kingdom love. And folks, we cannot generate this. And if we needed any help knowing that we fall far short of kingdom love on a daily basis in our lives, if we needed any more incentive to pursue this and to ask for grace that we might live this out and reflect the character of our king, if we needed anything else, we get the concluding verse, verse 48, which slams it home for us. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You can't just have a little bit of this and that's sufficient. The standard is perfection. This is very bad news because we cannot live up to this kingdom standard. This is the kingdom conclusion. Christ demands perfection. This is the grand finale of chapter 5. This is the big show at the end. Jesus concludes with this potent, powerful statement that is the sum of all of his teaching. Perfection is the standard of my kingdom. That leaves us with a hole. That leaves us with a pit in our stomach. This verse outlines the ultimate demand for the kingdom citizen, and it gives us as make sure that we never shorten or abbreviate this understanding the standard is given to us in the verse. So before we cross out perfect and write mature or complete or some word that takes the edge off of what we find in verse 48, it tells us who the standard is. And so as soon as you're ready to shave off a little bit of what perfect means in the first part of the verse, check yourself because you need to shave that off in relation to the Heavenly Father as well. And folks, when the Heavenly Father is the standard, it doesn't matter what word you supply there, you are never going to be sufficient for it within and of yourself. So even if this concept was be as mature as your Heavenly Father is mature, does that leave you feeling better? It doesn't me. And yet the edge is still there. It's sharp, it's pointed, perfection is the standard God himself stands as judge and standard. Now you might be asking yourself the same question that Matthew chapter 19 verse 26 tells us the disciples asked of Jesus. Matthew 19 verse 26, they're going along in the way. Jesus is talking about these same unbelievable principles. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? Who can be rescued? We're doomed. This is it. Jesus looked at them. I love that. Jesus looked at them. They're walking on the road. You know, you can almost just sense this. It's 13 men. They're walking along. No doubt Peter is the one talking for the group because he always talked for the group. Peter's up there near the front. John's probably beside Jesus. They're walking along. And Peter says, who then can be saved? And Jesus stops and he looks at the disciples. He looks at them and look at what he says. Matthew chapter 19, verse 26. 
with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now that may have been on your refrigerator at one point in the past. That may have been your want a memory verse. But understand exactly the context of what Jesus is saying. No one is capable in and of themselves. It is impossible for anyone to be saved in and of their own effort because the standard is perfection. But with God, when God enters the scene, when God becomes active on behalf of a sinner, all things are possible. Even the salvation of a sinner is possible. Pastor John says this is precisely our Lord's point in all these illustrations and in the whole sermon to lead his audience to an overpowering sense of spiritual bankruptcy, to a beatitude attitude that shows them their need of a Savior, an enabler who alone can empower them to meet God's standard of perfection. You and I need a substitute who is perfect. And we need to have our judgment placed on a perfect substitute to its fullness, or we could never understand or experience God's forgiveness. The religious norm was love your enemy, hate your or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The kingdom demand was quite the opposite. It was love your neighbor and love your enemy. It was to reflect the very character of God in heaven. It was logical, it made sense. It was not natural, it was supernatural. And it concludes perfectly with this overarching conclusion of verse 48 that perfection is the standard. Folks, that leaves us staring the gospel right in the face, doesn't it? That's the bad news of the gospel. This is the bad news that makes the good news the good news. The bad news is perfection is the standard. The good news in response is that there is a perfect one who has come and stood in for you if you will believe. There is one who was perfect in every way, who died perfect and paid the penalty for all who would believe. This is Luke 9.23. If we will deny ourselves, crucify ourselves, take up our own cross, be dead to Adam, be dead to your life, and follow Christ in faith, we will not be turned away from the perfect judge. He will consider us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. We might be made righteous, stamped with the perfection that is the holy standard of a holy God. This will be the testimony of all who are in the kingdom. God's standard was perfection, and he supplied that perfection for me through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. And I have been adopted in as a son because of that great blessing.